Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. One of my favorite artists is the great Neil Young from Canada, as it turns out, Danny Moses. And in 1977, Guy Adam was a 13-year-old. He released American Stars and Bars. And on that album was a great song, Like a Hurricane. So as I was driving in today, the title of the show, Like a Hurricane, was resonating through my brain as one Jamie Dimon this week talked about hurricanes and durations and severity and soft landings and those things. But Danny Moses, by the way, you are listening to the On The Tape podcast. Guy Adami, Danny Moses, and Dan Nathan, I think you have something else in store. But before we even go down that road, we listen to you. We want your feedback. And you have spoken often and loudly about some of the things we're doing. So we're going to make some subtle nuanced changes along the way, but Dan Nathan can wax poetic about some of the things that we're thinking about here on the on the table. Well, we do get a lot of email. We do get a lot of suggestions and some of the stuff, most of the stuff is very constructive. So we um, appreciate all of that. And even when it's not constructive, Mm. we take something away from that. We have a great team that works with us, obviously, Stephen and Jacob and Amanda. You haven't heard Amanda's name in a while. She's been on maternity leave. She had a beautiful young baby that I got to meet last week. Baby CC. Baby CC. But Amanda's going to be back next March. And we're going to be making some structural changes to the pod a little bit. But one thing what we hear a lot about is like, hey, listen, can we get some more actionable ideas, like some that. stuff like that? So maybe at the end of each pod, before we get to the interview segment, we will go around the horn and each of us will talk about one situation, one story, one kind of special, maybe like it's a that. stock, maybe it's an ETF, something. All right, so let's do that. Stick around. We're going to try that at the end of the thing and come up with some ideas for names of that segment and, and hit us at it. We're going to go around yeah. the horn. You yeah, know, that's a baseball reference. And on this sort of eve of baseball, spring training, uh, I'm baseball. sure we'll Sorry. <laughs> One constant throughout time. That is so good. Of course, around the horn being the third baseman to the second baseman to the first baseman to turn a double play. And at times, you've seen that happen. It's a form of a triple play. It happened with the Yankees a few years ago. But I digress. So here we are again. I heard Jamie Diamond speaking. I'm watching the market. Obviously, we had a pretty significant sell-off earlier this week. Thursday, the market was volatile, up big early, down big midday, came back a bit. 
But there's still some things I think that we should be concerned about. And I will tell you, I think finally, Danny, the market is starting to take into consideration some of the headwinds that have been there for so long, but have been either ignored or avoided for that same amount of time. I do love Neil Young, one of my favorites, but I also am a fan of Marshall Bruce Mathers III. You know who that is? No. It is Eminem. That's his real name. That's the Eminem. That's That's the Slim Slim Shady Shady guy. I I love his work. And he had a song, Lose Yourself, in 2002. Line is, snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. That's where we are. Is Dan vomits in his mouth, but back to reality here. Oh he hates God. it. I, whatever, Dan. You're not an Eminem fan. Well, just you know, Danny, you're obviously not paying much attention. I, I named a podcast on OK Computer a oh. couple weeks ago. Snap back to reality. I mean, come on. All right, so so we're gonna have to cut it, cut it, cut it. Well, sorry, I don't listen to every one of your things. You do. You're a busy guy, Dan. I, I don't listen to everything, but great minds think alike. All right, so the question was that the stock market in 2023, Danny, is starting to pay attention to some of the headwinds that have emerged. And they've largely emerged as it relates to a dollar that's been rising. The rate of disinflation has slowed a little bit and the rate in which rates have gone higher. So the stock market's starting to pay attention, Danny. Yeah, it's starting to pay attention. And I've been saying, withstood that. We talked a couple of weeks ago when I, talking like this, it ended basically that day at, at Max Payne. <laughs> And we're not, I don't think we're going to see 4,200 again for a while. Don't quote me, probably tomorrow on a better PCE number. I don't think we'll see that. And so the reality is setting in in terms of it's now been almost a full year since the Fed started raising rates. And we're now above a 25% chance of 50 basis points here when they meet in a couple of weeks. And when you start to read through these latest batch of earnings, you're getting a much better picture this time with much less Fed noise, I should say, about what's happening, what's happening to the U.S. consumer, what's happening to companies, what's happening to their balance sheets. And I think the reality is starting to set in. And I think a perfect example, I know we're going to walk through some of these names here, but I think Walmart kind of says it all. As you guys know, I was very bullish on Walmart for the last few years and from e-commerce market share that I thought they could take from Amazon, but more because of the thesis that actually panned out, which is the higher end or middle end consumer starting to shop at Walmart. And they are taking market share from people like Dollar General. That became evident. But what are you going to pay for Walmart? I mean, it's 23 times 2023 earnings. So is it a good company? Yes. Do they pay a dividend? Sure. Do they buy back stock? Yes. But if that's the sexiest, you know, one of the sexiest games in town, I just think we're going to start to see this kind of, and what's scary me right now, guys, is this 60-40 trade here that went against everybody last year. It feels like it's reemerging again with this move that we've had in rates. And we are now seeing the two-year go back to rates we haven't seen in a long time. Forget the 10-year. So I think this is a very unsettling time. And as we approach the Ides of March there for you, history buffs, especially Guy for Julius Caesar, I, I think we're in for a rocky road. So, so Danny, you just said 4,200 in the S&P 500, which is pretty fascinating. You also said that we are nearing the one-year anniversary of the Fed's first rate increase, okay, that they did in this cycle. And just so you know, when they raised on March 16th, 25 basis points, it was obviously very well telegraphed. The S&P was trading in and around 4,200. But after that, it made a huge rip. Do you guys remember that? So it rallied from 4,200 to above 4,600 and then proceeded to basically go all the way down nearly to 3,600 in June right before that Fed meeting. And what's fascinating now as you think about this, it's the fastest pace of increases. They went from basically a zero interest rate bound to where they are right now at what? 475. They're going to be above 5% probably at the May meeting here. And the S&P is at 4,000. 
So you say, okay, well, we had all of these rate increases. We actually had the reversal of QE that's gone to QT here now. We have a dollar that's firmed up. I know that you guys want to talk about this a little bit, but what we've seen in high yield and junk bonds, Mm -hmm. guy, you guys have been bringing that up. I mean, the pace in which they went down over the last few weeks in step with stocks was really interesting. The only answer that I can get from people who are smarter than me about Fed policy and everything is that if the Fed were to do an about face and start to lower interest rates, there would have to be something going on in the credit markets for them to do that. So I do think it's interesting that high yield and junk bonds were selling off. Now, they firmed up a little bit. Now, it's interesting, a lot to unravel here. So a few things. It was 44 BC, I believe, when Julius Caesar was assassinated by Brutus and Cassius, a two Brute, then fall Caesar. Now that was foreshadowed by the soothsayer, beware the Ides of March, as Danny mentioned. I mentioned soothsayer because I think Danny's been a bit of a soothsayer here as well, talking about seeing the future right before him and allowing people to make their own observations or determinations based on that. I'll say this, Dan, I'm glad you brought up high yield because we talked to Richard Fisher on CNBC's Fast Money earlier this week, and the question that I asked him was simple. I said, I don't believe there's a Fed put in the form of the S&P. If it exists, it exists about 1,000 points lower. I think the Fed put exists in two ways. It's either unemployment going to 5%, which does not appear to be happening anytime soon, or the credit market seizing up. To your point, the HYG over the last couple weeks, an instrument that really doesn't move, has gone from about 78 to 73 in the course of about seven or eight trading days. It does not seem dramatic. It is. And if credit starts to deteriorate, that's when we should be concerned. And that might trigger this Fed rate cut in the back half of the year. But I'll tell you, if that happens to your point, Dan, things are going to be pear-shaped in a meaningful way. I would say, so you know, I really don't care about the Fed as much, but I have to pay attention to it. But I will say in the Fed minutes, and I did read them, it was completely different than what happened in that press conference. What do I mean? They acknowledged a lot of issues in those Fed minutes and specifically in credit and specifically in the CRE sector, where they said that they expect the mark to market to start to occur, which I know we're going to get into here shortly of what they're starting to see. And I'll tell you this, for Jerome Powell, again, at that press conference last meeting to say that he hasn't seen an easing of financial conditions. Well, Now he can say he hasn't, because to your guys' point, we reverted back to a tightening bias. And for people out there, high yield will just go down on rates moving up in general as the spread kind of widens. But there's two parts Mm -hmm. to that. There's potentially underperformance or inability to pay going forward. And let's keep in mind, people, that if rates do stay higher, a lot of these companies have to refinance their debt. And you can see the schedules over time, 2024, what does it look like, 2025? And those are the type of things that start to matter as people start to look forward. And again, looking at individual companies, and by the way, there's probably great opportunity to buy some corporate debt, or there will be, we've seen a huge sell-off in corporate debt in general, find that name. I agree with that. Now, the other thing that appears to be deteriorating as well are defaults. If you look at landlord default rates, and that's something that's been in the news this week, this is starting to permeate the news cycle, and more and more people are starting to write about this, and more and more people are starting to talk about this, and that is another piece of this equation that we've been talking about for quite some time. You're going to start seeing more and more defaults, which by its own definition is not particularly bullish, and by its own definition will deteriorate the economy further 
in an environment that the Fed continues to hike rates. Danny Moses. Yeah, no, listen, let's not forget the Fed and all their glory with QE was buying RMBS, CMBS, and most of that's agency. I won't go in to get wonky, but just know that they kept spreads tight for a long time. When COVID started, Fed funds were 150. And they ended up obviously cutting because of what happened. We are now fast forward, and Dan talks about all the time the level on the S and P prior to when COVID started was probably going to be end up where we're going to go. That's probably the level that we're going to be going. What I find interesting is this: this is from M and T Bank. They have a five billion dollar office portfolio. Twenty percent of their portfolio is in distress. They ran a stress test on it, right? That's a combination of vacancy and lease rates and so forth. Then, guy, what you alluded to before is Brookfield is having defaults. Mm-hmm. Pimco is having defaults in certain of these office properties. And there is no Fed that's going to save you this time for that. And so when I say now where Fed funds are four and a half going to five, where we are, put that in perspective on the round trip. And it's not lost on me that these stocks literally, some of these office property stocks are in the same exact spot they were. Guess when? February 2020. So again, full circle on everything, full circle in the digestion of all the stimulus and all the QE that's gone on. Back to reality, Dan. Snap back to reality. You know what's interesting, though, when I think about commercial real estate and defaults? I pull up one chart, two letters, ZM, Zoom. This was a poster child, right, mm-hmm. for the pandemic, work from home. And part of the narrative was that we're never going back. And let's be fair. I mean, to some degree, we haven't gone back. This stock is down 87% from its all-time highs made in late 2020. But what's more interesting to me is not how much it's down from its highs. It's only up 16% from its lows, from its multi-year lows, from basically its all-time lows. And so they're saying kind of different things about different parts of the market when you think about it, right? So again, we might have a credit event for people who have exposure to commercial real estate, but on the flip side, that is not being translated into, hey, some of those things that worked right during the pandemic should continue to work at these valuation levels. There's another stock, and I know this is kind of a hard turn here, guys, but it was also a pandemic darling. This company, Snowflake. Okay. Mm -hmm. Do you remember this? It was trading like 40, 50 times sales. It was a late 2020 IPO. It had a $100 billion market cap. It's a company that is still expected to grow sales at 40 plus percent a year for the next few years. It still trades at about 20 some times earnings, but it's also interesting to me, there's stocks that have doubled off the lows. We've talked about them. One of them is Nvidia right here, right? You know, Tesla has obviously just um, doubled off its lows. Snowflake was trading like 120 in early January. That was basically very near a 52 week low. It's trading 152. Mm -hmm. Now I get it, 30 bucks, that's a lot, but this stock is also down from an all time high of $430, okay? And so when I think about from a valuation standpoint, I think about probably decelerating growth enterprise spending environment that's probably going to be lessening. Just think about that. One of the attributes of the default of commercial real estate is also that some of the biggest employers in this country who might be in those office spaces are laying people off. If they're laying people off, they're using less SaaS and big data companies and that sort of thing. So to me, I just think there's a lot of things that actually, if you want to take a look under the hood, don't look as rosy as the S&P up 5% and the NASDAQ up 10% on the year. I'd agree with that 100%. And It's also on the backdrop where companies have told you they have to pay their employees more. So, again, you have so many cross currents going on right now, Danny. You have clearly job cuts. Every day we wake up, seemingly another company announces a round of job cuts. And on the flip side, you have major companies in this country that have to pay their employees more 
to retain them, which is also going to make inflation. Retainer. Retainer. Extraordinarily <laughs> sticky. I don't know what that was. What is retainer? Come on, that's Goodwill Hunting. Good hunting. That's Ben Affleck. Oh, hey, but you know, yeah, have you guys seen the trailer for this new Nike movie that's coming out on I, Amazon? Can I tell you Damon something? Damon and Affleck. I love those two. Oh, man. I'd watch them read the effing phone book and I'd pay to see it. <laughs> retainer. You're suspect. Yeah, and one other company that comprises all of this, which was a company that was in dire straits prior to the pandemic, is Wayfair. I mean, look where this stock was just three weeks ago. I think it's down 50% in three weeks. The stock's down, and look where that is relative. So they obviously do home furnishing, but they do a lot of office furniture shipments. They never really was a profitable company. So the point is this. It's a confluence of the way that people are changing the way that they behave, the way on top of layoffs occurring, the work week has not gone back to five days. It's three to four days, basically what it is. And so all those things, that company never should have been up at the levels. And Dan, you're looking at facts that I don't know where Wayfair was at the highs, but from high to low here, from high to where it is, it's down a lot. Yeah. Well, here's the thing. This is a good little tease here because guys stick around here when you're done with Guy and me and Danny. Danny has a conversation with Porter Collins Stop and it. Vincent Daniel at what are we doing? I think they're going to talk about the Wayfair, but that thing was trading 350, Danny, <laughs> in mid 2021. And here it is at 38. But I love Porter had a tweet earlier today. It said, W, shareholders gave management a half a billion dollars to have them lose 1.3 billion in net income. We all should be applying for a job. <laughs> so stick around for that. That's a great tweet, man. By the way, you got McKinsey out there who advises companies and what to do, and they're laying people off. So it's a reset. It's not the Great Recession. It's nothing like that happening here. But in increments, you are seeing it happen. Well, you know, it's interesting. So here's another piece of feedback we get. Just, you know, I read every email that comes in at contact.riskreversal.com. Don't tell people that. They will flood you. It's fine. We want to hear it. Listen, we want this thing to get better every week. Okay. Like that's just a fact. But we also want this to represent the sort of conversations that the three of us might have if we're sitting around and talking about the markets and what we're going to be doing trading and the like here. And listen, if you've already listened to, let's say the first 15 minutes of this, you're like, God, these guys, they just won't give it up. They just seem really negative, really bearish. Are there any positive stories? So Tuesday, we had the worst day of the year in the S&P 500 down 2% and the NASDAQ down 2.5%. And we're trying to hang on here a little bit. I guess the thing that kind of bugs me, guys, is that we still feel like we're in this buy the dip mentality. And one of the things that I think was a hallmark of the bear market in 2022, we talked about this a lot. It seemed very orderly on the index level. We had a series of lower highs, a series of lower lows. I think we all got a little bit faked out with that December low that it didn't go back and match the October low. And now we're kind of flirting mm -hmm. with an uptrend from the October lows. And it seems like a dicey spot. We're just above that 200-day moving average. So there's a little support here. But the investor mentality that they want to buy stocks on just a 4 or 5% dip and it's some grand opportunity, that's the thing that continues to confound me. There's no fear in the market well, right now. Well, proof positive of that is the NVIDIA reaction to what was a fine quarter, yep. but a stock that had rallied some 100% off the October low, a stock that was looking great into the earnings release, a stock that, in my opinion, needed to be sold ahead of earnings for a myriad of different reasons, not least of which valuation, a stock that was trading 50 times next year's number, a stock that was trading almost 18 times revenue, and a stock, quite frankly, that I think got way ahead of itself. Now, a 15% move ensuing on the back of earnings made no sense to me. I'll just say this quickly. I mean, you're talking about a company that was a $225, $230 stock this time last year. Stock is trading effectively there now. 
but a stock that uh, year over year, I think revenues are down some 31%, earnings are down some 27% or so. And you have to ask yourself, I mean, this stock is more expensive, in my opinion, today than it was a year or so ago, and it was already expensive going in. But that, to me, illustrates the point that you're making, Dan. I mean, people are still buy all dips, a party on, all those types of things that got people in a lot of trouble earlier last yeah, year. Yeah, well, and I guess this can bring us a little bit to some of the geopolitical. And again, we're at the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And again, there were some that were worried about inflation in late 2021. The Fed was not no. one of those. But I will say that it was that invasion. It was the thing that a lot of people didn't think was going to happen, ended up happening. The sort of disruptions that we saw to the energy supply chains. And that is really what kind of, I think, set off a lot of the alarm bells in risk assets. If you think about what's gone on with the semiconductor space here, and you think about as just kind of supply chains in the terms of national security, okay, mm -hmm. we learned a lesson during the pandemic. We've obviously spent 40 to 50 years reorienting supply chains towards Asia. And so most of the advanced chips in the world are made in China and Taiwan. And so we've had this ban from some of our companies and their inability to sell their technology to China. All of a sudden, man, this thing is going to get ratcheted up. We've talked about it. We don't have to get into the specifics. It's very clear that our relations with China are getting worse and really are probably the worst guy you've said in multiple decades here. If there is any dislocation with our access to chips, all that stuff that we talked about with inflation, remember all of those different OEMs, whether they're cars or any sort of manufacturing, and all these chips are going into all of these different devices. If we can't get them, then you get back into that spiral with double, triple, quadruple ordering. The prices are going to continue to go up here, and the Fed's going to have to stay bid on their efforts to combat inflation. So to me, the semiconductor space is probably one of the most interesting spaces right now to keep a very close eye on, especially when you think about it from a geopolitical standpoint. I have a comment on a semiconductor name on Intel, and I know it's not a sexy name anymore. And of course, they were going to cut the dividend because you couldn't expect that they were going to be paying $6 billion a year with what they were doing. And remember, Dan Loeb got involved here a couple of years ago to kind of start to move the needle. What did Intel do? They spun out Mobileye, which is still in a lot of. And by the way, I'm not pitching Intel as a long here, but Mobileye has effectively doubled since that spin out. So that's a nice chunk of change from an asset value perspective for Intel. And they're doing the right thing. Flip side of that, TJ Maxx, they increased their dividend. What is TJ Maxx doing, right? That's home goods, you know, Marshalls, people, again, trading down. So you have companies that are managing their balance sheet in the middle of all this. And again, it's not negative or positive. That's what these companies should be doing. Granted, Intel took a long time to do it. Stock's not overly cheap yet. But again, I find it interesting that people would be surprised that they're cutting their dividend from a buck 46 to 50 cents when it should have been priced in. And it was, and the stock traded accordingly. So I know that's not a China theme per se, Dan, but it is within the sector. And so when people start to look at the semiconductor ETF, so forth, and see Taiwan Semi, AMD, and Intel, they're all very different, and they all have different exposures in there. So I just wanted to highlight that. And that was one of the things about the NVIDIA. That quarter was fine. They came in a little better than expected. The guidance was a little better than expected. But Jensen Wang, the CEO of that company, made a couple really smart comments on the call. He talked about how AI is at an inflection point, mm -hmm. And he talked about how their advanced chip for AI systems is in full production. And there should have been an exclamation point. Out. And when you think about this company and you think about the sorts of peaks and valleys it's had over the last five years, they've been attached to almost every major hype 
cycle in tech, whether it was Bitcoin mining, whether it was gaming, whether it was a data center, whether it was auto, it goes on and on and on. And we were talking about this guy live on Fast Money on Wednesday night as the results were coming out. It just seems really funny that they're like a chameleon in a way. They're able to speak to whatever the sexiest sort of thing is. And I guess that's the only way that if you are a half a trillion dollar market cap company with earnings growing about 30% a year and sales growing, let's call it between 10 and 20% or so, that's the only way you can keep this ship afloat by really attaching yourself to the kind of buzziest narratives in tech. And they've done a good job doing that. This is a bit of a Gaia Dami rant, if I may, because Danny mentioned Intel and their spin off of Mobileye. Now, I remember when they announced that and they said, we're going to spin off Mobileye to unlock its value. And my pushback to them in a very public fashion on CNBC's Fast Money is, why do you need to spin it out in order to unlock their... It means you're doing a shitty job of narration or telling the story. The fact that Mobileye's done so well outside of the purview of Intel is indictment in and of itself of Intel. But I digress for a second. Danny, this is for you. You a Hemingway fan? Absolutely. That's Ernest Hemingway, not Mariel Hemingway, by the way. Okay. Great author. The Sun Also Rises, one of his novels, if you recall. Danny? Okay. Yep. Sun Also Rises. Yes. Well, there was a book out in 1991. I think it was Bill Emmett. You can fact check me if you want. The Sun Also Sets. And that was talking about the sort of the fall of the great Japanese empire, the strength of the Japanese economy and those types of things. Why do I bring that up, Danny? Because again, right before our very eyes, it happened again this week. Japan seems to be pushing all the panic buttons in the form of their central bank. New guy in charge there. Same as the old guy, right, Danny? Yep, same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Thoughts on that? Because again, gold has come off recently. I get it. Dollar has rallied. But all roads that I'm seeing point to gold. And the first road is what's going on with the Bank of Japan. Yeah, we'll see. I think what's frustrating for me right now on gold is I still want to believe that someday that inflation will be a equal to buying of gold, but that still hasn't come out yet because I think we should have it both ways, but we're not getting it right now. But as it relates to Bank of Japan, we talked about it could be the canary in the coal mine. And yeah, these are small things. These are symbolic gestures. Obviously, the new head of the BOJ is speaking Friday, I think, into the lower house. He's a nominee. He'll take over in April. They already came out and said that they would buy 300 billion yen, which is $2.2 billion. So let's not go crazy here of government bonds, JGBs that are maturing between five and 10 years. And so they're doing everything they can to keep this yield curve control at 0.5%. But everyone knows that it's just a game. And at some point that that game is kind of over. So mm-hmm. gold could do well in, in various scenarios. It's frustrating. I'm sitting here 1835, 1845, 1850. I still like it. I know it's drifted a little bit lower here, but at some point it's going to work and it's hard to see it not working. But again, listen, between the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, and God forbid it ever happens here, right? In terms of physical credibility or you know ability to finance ourselves, that's certainly scary to think about. They're talking about emergency bond buying. I mean, that's the headline that's coming out of that. And I will tell you, emergency anything in the form of central banks, all roads lead back to gold, in my opinion. And they're very forthright in that, Danny. I mean, they're outwardly talking about that. So they are pushing the panic button left and right. Well, they own, obviously, a ton of our treasuries. And so yes. if you want to think about our 10-year yields, which have now moved from 335 to basically 395 here in a, in a straight line, yeah, there's inflationary things that are out there, maybe a little bit worse than have been expected, but let's not kid ourselves. That's flows of our treasuries. And if they're forced to sell our treasuries, and you guys just mentioned China, 
who's the other large holder of our treasuries, you want to start some economic warfare. And they're doing it. They're both. I'm not comparing those two countries because they're doing them for different reasons. They need to do it in Japan to shore up their finances. But we're the source of that capital. And so there just adds another element of risk that's kind of out there. And it's certainly you have to be paying attention to this. You also have this unholy allegiance. You mentioned China with China and Russia, Taiwan sending troops to the United States to be trained by the United States. I mean, we're not alarmists here, but you have to pay attention to the news flow. And to Dan's point, yes, U.S.-China relations are worse they've been since the pre-Nixon administration. That goes back to the 1960s, and it's not getting better anytime soon, in my opinion. And again, this ratcheting up of the rhetoric, it is not particularly bullish. And if we were to go down this road, it's extraordinarily inflationary to one of the points that Dan made earlier. All right. By the time you're listening to this, we will have the PCE out. So this is going to be Friday morning. It's coming out. And I guess my focus would be this is every hot number that we get. And I'm just assuming that we're going to get a slightly hotter number than it's expected, even if it's just a little bit hotter. I think you're going to continue to see yields tick up. So the 10 year yield, if it gets above 4% right now, it's like 387. It was 391 this morning. I just think that might be the thing that causes the VIX to get to the mid 20s, that causes the S&P to meaningfully go below 4,000, maybe on its way back towards that 3,800 level where we consolidated in late December, early January. And then going back to what Danny, we were saying is like we had a low 3530 or something like that back in October. And maybe we get back to that pre-pandemic low at some point when basically we start to see a bit of the economic cooling. We start to see the S&P earnings estimates starting to come down a little bit, which would anticipate maybe a soft landing, which I think we're all kind of apoplectic about this whole idea of a no landing situation here. And that's maybe how we get it. Now, all that being said, I think you guys are in agreement. We don't have to pile on there. What's something that we can be constructive about? Anybody got anything? Because I got a name and a guy, you probably got a name. Danny, you probably have a name. That's a Jim Croce song, by the way. The late, great Jim Croce. I've got a name. I've got a name. That one? Wow. That, it is amazing. That was better than your Marshall Mathers impression, just so you Appreciate know. Appreciate that. We'll be calling this segment, Dan. Is it Construction Junction? Well, we don't know yet. So please write us. Let's come up with a segment. I think if this goes well, we'll do it again next week, and then we'll do it again next week. Why don't we just call it I've Got a Name? And then when the brains behind the operation, Amanda gets back, and she wants to start babysitting us a little bit, we'll come up with a good name. How's that? Whoa, Jacob just said taking stock. By the way, just so you know, you are setting this up as if I'm going to pitch along, which we're going to be constructive, but it doesn't necessarily, <laughs> along could be long puts on something, right, Dan, that owning puts on True something. True that. Anyways, yes. Dan, you're going to kick this off because this is your baby here. All right, let's do it. So by the time you're listening to this, Square Block will have reported, and I'm not going to get into that number. I just don't see from a valuation standpoint and expected growth standpoint and some of the headwinds that I think that they have from a competitive standpoint, I don't see it happening. But I do like... PayPal here. So PayPal is trading around $75, definitely on a relative level here. So PayPal is expected to have 18% earnings growth, about 8 9% sales growth this year. This is about a 48% gross margin company. All of those expectations are higher than Square's. The stock was trading at its all-time high at 310. I go, that doesn't really matter. That was back in mid-2021. So here we are, 75 bucks. We're not far off of its recent lows. The December lows are about $66. But again, there's no price point in which we can all just say, that's it. You kind of have to dollar cost averaging. I'm starting to really think about this name. It's got a great balance sheet. They have about $10 billion in cash on an $85 billion market cap. They have $11 billion or so 
in debt. So that's about an $85 billion enterprise value. I just think this thing trading about 15 times this year, 13 times next, maybe this is how stocks bottom and then ultimately markets bottom in bear markets. You need to have estimates overshoot. You need to have consensus estimates overshoot what this company is likely to be able to do. And I think they might have ground down low enough. So to me, PayPal looks really interesting in around 75. I think you can average into this thing down to those recent lows in December, maybe towards 66 or so. But again, I'm going to start with like a quarter position and then at 70, I'll add a little more. And then at 67 and a half, I'll add, I'm just going to work myself into a position. But I also want to make sure that I'm going to stop myself at a certain point if things go haywire. I've got a name, okay. if I may. Levon Helm, I know Danny knows this, one of the great drummers, rock drummers of all time. Also a great vocalist. Of course, the song Levon by the great Elton John. But I'm going to give you something close. And that, of course, would be Devon Energy. Oh my God. We'll take How did D. you do that? How See did you did do there? that? No. And I'll tell you so, Devon reported on Valentine's Day an unmitigated disaster. The stock had a huge double top for you technicians out there, right around, I would say, the 77 level. We saw it over the summer. Textbook double top. Well, guess what? Those double tops have been replaced by a bit of a double bottom here around that 52 and a half or so level. You had a huge volume day. In the ensuing trading session, I believe that was the 15th of February, which if I'm not mistaken, was a Wednesday, and it's subsequently starting to get back on its horse. The Devon news, the Devon quarter was Devon specific, but it's also a quarter that they'll be able to sort of dig their way out of. The problems that they face are not insurmountable. Valuation is extraordinarily compelling. I still believe in the energy space, and I think the risk reward for Devon not leave on, Danny Moses, is compelling right here. Devon likes his money. <laughs> I'm going to start out with kind of a short to watch and a sector to watch, and then I'm going to give you a long that's actually going to be reporting in a couple of weeks, if I can do that. So full circle, this subprime auto, and I think people are not paying attention to it as much as they should. Go back again. These stocks are exactly where they were when? February 2020, when Fed funds were at 1.5%. We're currently at 4.5%. You got Credit Acceptance Court, CACC, and Ally, A-L-L-Y, the two big ones. Obviously, Ally is always paired with Carvana since they supplied the financing. I won't even talk about Carvana. I don't think it's worth discussing. But you guys need to start keeping an eye on this out there. And so if you're long these stocks, I'm going to tell you to go short. Be aware you get monthly securitization data, and I think it will start to trend poorly. I think we had a brief respite there. So watch those names and CarMax and so forth. They're all kind of associated with it. However, the long. So last Friday, DraftKings reported. Stocks has actually done well for the year, but I'm not talking about DraftKings here. I want to own the data providers that supply the data to DraftKings and other interfaces that allow in-game live wagering, et cetera, because we know that it's big. I mentioned a company a while ago called Sport Radar, symbol is S-R-A-D. Stocks around, I think, $12 here as we move into the close. They're going to be reporting on March 15th. Now, the irony with Sport Radar is they basically supply data to everyone but the NFL. So you would say, oh, Danny, why would you want it? They have the NBA. Major League Baseball is going to start to kick off. This company actually makes money. And I truly believe Genius is the other one that supplies the NFL. They do these contracts with them. That's G-E-N-I. It's a $5 stock. But I truly believe that, guys, keep this in mind. California, Texas, and Florida are not in the online gaming sphere yet. And they will be eventually. Massachusetts is coming. Why? We talked about the economy potentially slowing down. What better source of potential tax revenue is there going to be? So I think these are going to be takeout targets at some point. But separate from that, I think SRAD looks good on the chart. I think SRAD here is going to put together another very good quarter and outlook. And I think this thing is just at the beginning. So 
High margin business growth, SRAD, reports on March 15th. Take a look at it. I think the macro is very strong in online gambling. How about that, Dan, for a long pit? I love it. Again, we're just trying to kind of react a little bit to some of the feedback that we have here. We like the setup of the pod, but we want to make sure that things get changed up each week and we're introducing some new actionable ideas or at least things that we're kind of focused on. I want to say one other thing here since we referenced Goodwill Hunting. Remember the scene when Affleck says to Damon, I just hope one day I knock on your door and you're basically out of this town. I want to come on this pod one day with so many long ideas. And so it's just not there right now, people. I search every day. I wake up like, what can I own? Yeah, you can find some stuff and energy here and there. But this tape, things need to get back down a little bit to quote normal. So anyway, I wanted to throw that in because it made me think of that scene in Goodwill Hunting. And that's it. Like a pine tree lining the winding road. I've got a name. Well, I will tell you, when we come back, Danny's not having a conversation with pine trees. No, he's having a conversation with the mighty oak, the sequoias of the trading world. Two giants in their own right, Vinnie Daniel and Porter Collins. Stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership-only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome back to On the Tape for another episode of What Are We Doing? It's been a few weeks now since Porter and Vinny and I were together. And as a matter of fact, over the last couple of weeks, as volatile as things have been, we really haven't talked at all about the markets and how you're positioned and so forth. So a lot of people out there are going to want to hear about it. And why don't we just kick it off right now with you guys? Give me your current view here. Porter, we were together beginning of February. So it's been exactly three weeks actually since we were together and a lot has happened since then. So start with you, get your thoughts on kind of the macro of what's happening and we'll go from there. Well, the funny thing is, is Vinny and I were just talking about like people sometimes like, why you guys always mess around? Like, why, why you guys seem very unserious? Well, I like to say, if you've gone through the wars that we've been to, you just, A, you can't take yourself too seriously. And B, it's far too stressful to be serious all the time. It's just, we enjoyed a lot of gallows humor, which uh, really keeps us upbeat all the time. Yeah, I will tell people out there, we when we were on the desk together, we had the NFL red flag that we would throw when a number came out that we didn't agree with for replay. We had songs that we would play in the morning when we were going to battle or we knew we 
at our annual Christmas party, we would obviously come up with a CD. Those people out there listening, a lot of people have them. Rob Riley used to compile them. I think we would do 10 or 12 songs that kind of dictated the moods of the year. Most of these guys know what shorts we've been involved with and what they've done over the past month. I mean, I would say we've done a pretty good job of risk managing the ones that could have really killed us. You know, We didn't keep shorting all the way down. And I think last time we talked about how Tesla, we had successfully cut the position by a lot when it got down low. And we've been back to our full short position here again. And we've successfully lived through the Wayfair fiasco up and down. Lucid, they tried to kill us there too. They puked on themselves this morning. They tried to get you on Carvana. I've lived through the Coinbase short. That was fun. Silvergate, Ken Griffin and the clowns try to kill us there too. So <laughs> it's been a interesting month and change. Is the squeeze over? Is the junk trade over at this point on the long side, you guys think? I mean, I have my opinion, but I want to hear your guys' thoughts. In every drawdown, you start doing some soul searching and you start going, was 2022 the only year that was somewhat rational? And as the calendar flipped, we've gone back to this idiotic market where short squeeze algos, regular algos, these moves make no sense. I mean, look at NVIDIA today. Quarter was fine, I guess. Stock's up 14%. In no world should this stock be up 14% today, worth 20 times revenues, 120 times cash flow. It's a very odd market. We were just comparing Google to NVIDIA recently. And Google's nine times EBITDA. And Vinny's quote was, the balance sheet's godlike. It's a very odd market, but I don't know. We see lots of opportunities, long and short here. Pretty uh, pissed off and fired up right now. So there you go. <laughs> All right, Vin, you're up, buddy. So I was joking around with Porter before we did this, and I was like, I think I'm going to try and piss off Danny and Porter like I would when we were way back when in the office. And I was thinking about this all weekend long. It's like the one thing, aside from the year 2022 and probably 2007 and 2008, but it's worse now, I think, that all three of us do not do well are narrative stocks. We're horrible at them. And the reason being is it's just our brains logically can't equate to the stuff that is happening in those stocks and the reactions that it has to things that we're looking at the same press releases everyone else and the algos are and the charts and the valuation and we think x and everyone else thinks y i'm thinking of nvidia in particular today but i looked at that press release i was listening to the call that ceo couldn't say ai enough times to get every single algo going and yet if you actually looked at the numbers the numbers on our brains would suggest, given the valuation, the stock should probably go down. But of course, it did the exact opposite. So I was saying, like, well, wouldn't we save ourselves a lot of brain cells, agita, stress, by just simply not even looking at these names ever? Like, we're not good at them. And hopefully, this means that we're hitting top because I'm being contrarian on myself. But like, it's just too painful to fight this stupid narrative of these names again and again and again, where there's so much else to do in the market for guys like us. It's not only this narrative, it's every narrative between hard landing, no landing, big flip, no flip, Goldilocks, they come up with new narratives every five minutes. All right, so before we get into that, back to the comment you guys just made. So you're managing your own money. So effectively, you have unlimited duration. I mean, for the most part, you don't have to worry about 
redemptions and so forth. So you're in an enviable position relative to what I think that has been going on, which is the Melvin Capital hangover that still exists, right? From a couple of years ago in the sense of hedge funds came into the year, probably net short or shorter than they probably would have been if they, obviously if they knew this was going to happen, but just in general, maybe not as grossed up, but still off sides. And they had to make a business decision, I believe, at some point, you know, late January when they finally kind of gave in. And I think that's when we saw this late inning rally in these crap names, if you want to call it. And I don't think that's a coincidence. And I think it's hard for investors out there that aren't in the business to understand that aspect. And it feeds on itself. The point you made, Porter, about some of these names being controlled by certain funds or short interest being taken advantage of, and that's fair game. Those are technicals out there in the marketplace, but they certainly got exploited. And so I think you can have a clear head. And I think it's important for people that are out there, whether you own a stock and you want to be long it for long term because you believe that you can deal with short-term derivations and you, quote, put it away, versus the comment that Vinny just made and why bother? Well, at the end of the day, if you have duration, things will find their natural price, right? So where we sit right, here to do will with should? Will, should, could, maybe will at some point in the future. And again, it always takes longer. It takes longer, it seems like, for value stocks to work and always takes longer for growth stocks to come back to earth when they're not growing according to their multiples. But we have seen a massive, we had a great, to your point in 2022, Porter, what you were trying to say was you got rewarded for value versus growth. You got rewarded for bottom up. And it feels like this first six, seven weeks has not. I think we're going back to that again here quickly. And I think there's a reset coming. So let me shift it back to kind of the macro, which you really didn't kind of address, is that the obsession with the Fed, how everybody's on every PCE, every CPI, every, right? At the end of the day, once this smoke clears, it's what these companies do in the current environment that matters. So how do you play right now? You got to play, I guess, you know, on the edges in terms of taking some shorts down and taking some longs up and things like that into certain quote prints and be cute about it. But how do you guys think about that factoring right now as we hopefully shift from the macro to the micro? I could say what we've been doing over the past week, which would probably help. Lately, while we were taking down shorts and call it late January, early Feb, mid-January, we've been actually increasing shorts over the last, say, week and a half, two weeks. And the reason why we felt that way is pretty much what you were getting at, Danny, which is the technical exhaustion of the first month of people being off sides. We're probably in the middle to later innings, and maybe the game is over. We'll see. In addition to that, the earnings that have come out have been, for the most part, poor. And as much as I don't like to admit the last part, I think that the fixed income markets were offsides to the extent of what they thought the Fed was going to do at the end of 2023 and 2024. Economic data has come in better than expected over the last, say, five, six weeks. You can't dispute it. However, we were still expecting rate cuts. So I think what you've seen is a proper shift in fixed income rates back to the Fed not being as dovish as expected, which is, of course, should have negative implications to the market as a whole. So we've been pressing shorts, mostly from the fundamental perspective, but quite frankly, some of them from a technical perspective too, things that are just sitting at 80 RSI and their business models aren't as good as what the stock is suggesting. People have been listening to us for a while. We were in the, over 18 months ago, in the inflation camp, and then somewhere around the summer, we basically said that inflation has peaked, but 
probably wasn't going to come back to the magic 2% number that people thought. I mean, look at what Home Depot did this week. They raised wages 7%. I mean, I don't think the payroll numbers were as good as what the BLS and their magic dust were as good as they said, but the numbers at Home Depot and Walmart and, and these big American employers put out, that's real. And the wage growth is real. And so I just have a hard time seeing how inflation really comes back to the mythical 2% level. And so therefore, you know, we've been saying that we don't think that the Fed can cut so quickly. Really interesting because right before the pandemic, we all remember things weren't great in the economy. They were starting to slow. I think Fed funds were one and a half percent, I actually think at the time, because they ended up cutting them 150 basis points over the following weeks and months as COVID got worse and worse, or it appeared to get worse at the time. As it relates to consumer credit, Vinny, which we've seen, this economy is amazing. It's really resilient. You just said it yourself. The data has been better. The U.S. consumer always finds a way to spend. It feels, however, this time it's a little bit more reckless in the sense of the backdrop is rates are higher, credit card balances are going to cost people a lot more and so forth. Give me an update on what you're looking at. I know things are probably still okay on the consumer credit, but it feels like we've probably seen the peak potentially. I'm sure you may correct me here. The prime and subprime are two completely different categories. But if you could just talk about that, because I think that's going to be a major theme here over the next two, three months. I think over the last, say, year, year and a half, it was inevitable that consumer credit was going to deteriorate. The question was, is it going to be normalization or is it going to be an outright credit issue? And right now we're still in normalization phase, but there are outliers, of course, in many respects. And the outliers exist with whoever has grown fastest. And in general, that has been more in the subprime case, but quite frankly, now it's actually starting in the prime case as well. I've been of the contention that given where credit card growth rates are, it's not the end of the world, but it definitely puts a crimp on growth. However, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give one slight silver lining that I don't think a lot of people, at least I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it. The COLA adjustments on social security, Cost of living for those people out there. Yep. And that's predicated on inflation. Well, for the first time in ages, the Bureau of Labor Statistics actually had to show very high rates of inflation. They couldn't lie as much as they did in the past. So as a result, many of our senior citizens of our country got extreme increases in COLA adjustment prices, which is money in their pocket on a monthly basis, which gets spent in the market. So is that good for the federal deficit? I, we'll talk about that later, but apparently no one seems to care about that. But if I take that aside and no one cares about the debt, it's actually a positive for economic growth in the near term. And I think that's one of the factors that we have probably been seeing that combined with this sneaky CapEx associated with the Inflation Reduction Act is probably why we're seeing better economic growth over the first five to six months. It could explain bookings on cruise lines, that's for sure, since that's that demographic. But yeah, Porter, thoughts on that? The other thing that's in the back of our minds is the whole China reopening. And I think that is another cross-current. People forgot that the largest economy in the world was shut down for effectively three years, right? Or two years, whatever the number was. And China reopening is big. And so you still have all these COVID hangover issues right now. And the same thing in the U.S. when we opened up, there was a lot of travel and you can see it in the travel numbers. The travel numbers are very good right now. And it's the U.S. people flying and it's the international people flying again. So the travel numbers are very good right now. And I wouldn't say everything is a disaster. I mean, housing, yes, we still think is a mess. I mean, look at real G today. It's like the stock's getting killed. 
And FAF, the title insurer, is down a lot today. And Wayfair is housing-related stock is down a lot today. So I think there's there's a lot of opportunities to make money. You just got to pick your spots. And the other thing people keep talking about is liquidity in the system. And I think we talked about it a long time ago. The Fed was never really serious about QT. And effectively, they're not serious about QT. And between the Chinese, the Japanese, and the U.S., the drawdown to their general account, there's been a lot of liquidity added to the system. And that's one of the main reasons the stock market's been going up. And so I sort of think some of these impulses are going to fade. And so that's one of the other reasons we've been layering back into shorts, not just Tesla fundamental stink, but. I like you snuck that one in. So rates are obviously up for everyone, except if you have a checking account and what you're getting paid. We've talked about this before. It's a potential big risk for the banks if you get outflows in deposits. What's the update on that? Because I was reading an article today. I mean, I think the average benchmark rate in the checking account is 0.23% still, or something, which is outrageous considering it wouldn't take much. So give me your update on that, Porter. I know that's right in your wheelhouse. I did a public service announcement last call or whatever, but people should not be putting their money in their checking account, right? They should be in a savings or CD. There's lots of ways to maximize yield or in your brokerage account, lots of ways to maximize yield. And I still think overall, the six-month or three-month T-bill is one of the best investments on the board right now. I just think it's fantastic, right? If you're a RIA or an individual, just sit and hang out. It's I think the markets is crazy enough right now, and there's not a, a whole handful of fantastic ideas. And so sitting around and waiting for the smoke to clear in the six-month treasury yield is fantastic. Not to promote one of risk reversal sponsors, but current right? You go on that app, you can get 4% basically in savings rates. You keep your money in it. It's basically fintech, but it helps you do something like that. Sorry. That really wasn't a plug. That's really truth. I'll check it out. I haven't seen that. Yeah, check it out. Check it out. All right, Vinny, sorry. And this is a little fig or inside baseball, but after 4Q earnings, if you read some of the notes of some of the regional banks, most of the analysts were getting bullish on the expectation that this dynamic that we're talking about right now peaked and that it was almost over. And as a result, you would see an improvement in the liability streams, the deposits of the banks, maybe starting in the second half of 2023, but definitely into 2024. And I remember reading the notes. I'm like, what the fuck are they talking about? The two-year and one-year are still in the four and a half, four percent range. And lo and behold, of course, what happened in February was that we reverted back up. I actually think it's going to accelerate simply by the fact that the disparity is still super wide. And now more and more friends speak to friends, speak to friends. And when you could get four and a half, five percent on six month T-bills or one year notes, you're crazy not to take your money away. Hope is a dangerous thing, Vinny. You got to go where the highest yield is on default risk-free returns eventually. And just that trend is pressure on the banking system. And just one last point, the value add of the banking system, where truly the value of it lies, is in the fact that they have had the ability to have low-cost deposit capital relative to everybody else in the world. And I think more and more, that's a challenge for them. Until the Fed blinks or pivots or whatever, that's a material challenge for them. I waited 20 minutes here to get into the energy. We've seen effectively the earnings cycle Natural gas, obviously, we're in a massive shoulder or approaching a shoulder month, I guess you could say. Not an energy guy, but I think that's where we are. And nat gas, there's articles coming out about people cutting production and 
potentially to align themselves, obviously, with what the prices are, et cetera. So give me an update on how you guys are in energy right now. I saw Peabody had a very good quarter. I think it's pulled back since just with nat gas and coal prices. But give us an update on your thoughts on energy here, boys. Within 36 months, we've had the steepest correction of oil, which was the COVID, and then now nat gas ever. So it's fair to say there's a lot of volatility going on. You know, I'm going to stick my neck out there and say natural gas is pretty close to a bottom or have already bottomed here, sub $2. A lot of rig layoffs already. A lot of that stuff's going on. A lot of wacky stuff in the triple derivatives market. And so I sort of think we're closer to a bottom here. If you get either a warm summer, a cold winter or whatever, I just sort of think you're closer to a bottom. And they're actually fairly constructive on oil here still. And so I think all things energy have sort of stunk with the reacceleration of people going back into tech and consumer. And so I'm getting a little bit more constructive as far as our BTU position goes. I, I absolutely love it. Stock is one and a half times EBITDA and is on the verge of returning about, they have to do some surety agreements, but about on the verge of returning 25% of the market cap back to the shareholders. And so the funny thing about this cycle is we were going through not only coal names, but a lot of these industrial names, US Steel, the balance sheets are unbelievable. And that's the big difference this cycle is that every coal company is in a net cash position because they can no longer ever rely on a bank again. And you look at even all the oil companies the same way, U.S. Steel, Nucor, all these companies, the balance sheets are just in a really, really good shape. So, and maybe that has something to do with people historically look at the JNK, the junk bond ETFs. I just think things are a little bit different because just the balance sheets are very different than they, they used to be. So I don't think you can rely on the same JNK as a signal that you could before. I still love it. I think you're going to get that BTU announcement in the next month or so. And so... I think you see a 25% upside pretty quickly. I mean, there was always a correlation. Maybe it's, it's not as relevant as it used to be. The nat gas to oil. There was always a ratio that existed. It was used, I think, because back in the day, I think you could have an alternative. I think the utilities could switch to one or the other. I think there was, some, maybe that's not the case anymore. People use that anymore, that ratio, because I can't remember it ever being this wide. And I could be wrong on that, but. The shale revolution broke that relationship. I actually saw that ratio for the first time, Danny, two days ago. Someone referenced it. Really? Um, yeah. I did not see it. I just remember it back in the day. That was like what you would use. Like, okay, well, if gas is here and the ratio is this, well, there's two things that could happen. Oil can come back down a lot or gas can move up a lot because it, the ARBs would get in there. And, and I'm sure the trading on ice has been pretty good recently with the activity that's been going on, but we shall see. So. All right, so guys, as you set up here into kind of the next quarter, it feels to me, at least, that fundamentals are, are starting to take over more than anything. And this market feels very tired. And you look at names like a Walmart. Yeah, it was a good quarter. It was fine. But it trades at 23 times forward earnings. And as much as I've loved Walmart over the years, as, as you guys know, the last couple of years, it's hard to make an argument. And I think there's a lot of names like that people are paying still a premium for safety. And I just don't know what the alternative is going to be. I think the bond market, obviously, having moved like it has in this last week, presents a lot of opportunities. It feels like, unfortunately, the 60-40 trade that went against the entire market that we thought was over is coming back here again. So I guess my question, if it's a question, is 
where do you kind of run and hide into safety? And this goes back to the question I asked you about 10 minutes ago about that value will have its day again and people will pay a premium for certainty or consistency or cash flow. So I know you guys structure your portfolio like that to a degree. I think we've said it before, but the next, say, call it one to 10 years could be just a lost period for stocks. Because I mean, stocks are just so expensive right now. And again, I don't see much upside. When the market got to 4,200, I was like, where's this market going? And people obviously extrapolate and there was a lot of squeezes and a lot of hysteria and a lot of narrative that went around it. And we try our best to ignore that stuff. And so I go back to how we think about stocks. We we love margin of safety. That's again, what's why I, I, I like BTU so much. And not that coal's the best thing ever, and which is not, and it's going away at some point in the next 20, 30 years. But at the level where cash is going to be three quarters of the stock price, it's just hard to get bearish. And in this market, it's, it's just odd that stocks like NVIDIA can't go high enough and value stocks on the other side can't go low enough. And so it's all about if the narrative is in your favor, stocks go up. If narrative's not in your favor, stocks go down. And so at least that's the mindset right now. And I don't buy into that, maybe stupidly, but I like to see, yes, where fundamentals are inflecting and going higher, that's generally we like to put our money and combined with a margin of safety on the downside. The other thing I would say, and just reiterate, you were saying, well, what are you doing with your money? What are you guys doing for safety? 5% yields on default risk-free is safety. It's really hard to beat that when you're thinking about the overwhelming amount of capital that you want to put to work, particularly when you don't believe that the markets are accurately reflecting where they should be. And all three of us tend to run bearish all the time, right? We might make that statement all the time, but I just don't really see a need for the S&P to go to 4,800. So if I don't think it's going to 4,800 or 4,500 for proper reasons, I'd rather put my money in default risk-free 5%. I also think that there's a crowding out factor of the U.S. deficit, right? And there's just going to be a huge draw on available capital to fund the market. And debt ceiling, whatever, they're going to fix it. I know they are, but because the U.S. is not going to default on their obligations. But it's a real issue. I mean, the market has 0.0% worries about the debt ceiling. So, And the other thing I would say, Danny, is that all of us three have fundamental brains. Almost every decision we make with stocks seem to be a function of fundamentals. But I do subscribe a part of my brain to the liquidity factor. And you have to think about that. And for me, being the cynic that I am, it starts with the premise of the fact, and it scares people when I'm about to make this statement, is that if you make the assumption that the US is bankrupt, and I do, then- Morally or, or fiscally? Fiscally. And I do- then it's the Fed's job to make sure that no one believes what I believe, which is that we are bankrupt. And so as a result of that, liquidity taps are going to be back and forth with us all the time. I think we just had a liquidity surge from, say, October of 2022 up until now. And what that allowed things to do is allowed to refi a lot of paper that needed to be refied. If it was not refied, we're dead. So now that it's refied, I actually think the rate of change of liquidity is going to be a challenge, which is one of the reasons why I think it's intelligent to be more bearish than what you have been over, say, the past few months. The problem with 08, yes, there was 
problems like there are now, but you were not able to refi. And when you're not able to refi, you have a liquidity problem and everything cascades. And so that's what happened in 08. The Fed knows that. And so they do everything they can to liquefy this market and to allow it to refinance itself. Back to the point, Vinny, earning 5% risk-free. I think corporate bonds are maybe will get to a level and the safe corporate bonds that where you can get not tax-free, but 7 8 9% taxable, possibly earning there. But there is something else going on. And I want to kind of close with this because I think this is going to be an ongoing theme. And goes back to the moral hazard issues of the Fed. And we dealt directly in the RMBS and the CMBS market for a long time. And yeah, it's not cataclysmic yet, but you are starting to see office property defaulting. You are starting to see it happen in the non-agency CMBS that's out there. And I won't go into all, just know that it's a pretty large market out there. Things are starting to happen. And I don't think people appreciate, one, that the banks aren't going to be there you know, on the desk to hold this paper like they have been in the past. Two, the Fed well, at this point, obviously not buying anything. They're, they're net sellers of mortgage-backed securities. That only inflates or makes this potentially worse. So I know you've been involved in the office property names from time to time. There's a few out there that, you know, the Boston properties, the SL Greens. Give me your thoughts on that, Vinny. Sadly, we're not involved in any of them right now, which is probably a shame on us, to be honest. But you talk about something that is probably in long-term cyclical or secular decline, it's corporate office. It's a sweeping generalization. There are probably pockets and opportunities on the long side, but we're not close enough on the ground to see them. But the trends there, vacancy trends, what corporations are doing, whether it's stay at home or even going back to work on a three to four day schedule or a modified schedule, those things are real. And so as a result, I just think the valuation of almost all things office are severely challenged. I would not want to be long them, and I particularly would not want to be long them levered. The way we think about sometimes, and let's exclude multifamily for a second because they have a guaranteed leverage spigot, but the way we think about real estate sometimes is you want a cap rate that's in the double digits on an unlevered basis. So in office, if you're looking to buy anything there, in my opinion, you want to start with the 12 or 15% on current NOI before I would buy anything. And that's without financing. Well, it sounds like you may not have missed the short yet. So I would <laughs> I'd go back no, and look. You're right. You're right. Many of these and- stocks are, are certainly at their 52-week lows, but they are all exactly, and I don't think it's a coincidence, pre-COVID, right back at those levels. They're kind of all dancing around that area. So again, I think it's worth, and I think on the subprime auto vending, which I know we didn't get into that, but I think that's another area and I'm sure you guys have looked there. And I was just looking because I forgot that Santander Bank bought Santander Consumer, by the way, at 41.50 in cash a year and a half ago. So congrats to them on that. But there's only a few ways to play that. So just an area that I think you guys, if you're not involved in, probably will be. To your point though, defaults and delinquencies are at post-08 highs. Right. And the Fed does not have your back here. That's my whole point. I think that the moral hazard, I think people have just forgotten that there's actual cycles which take place, that it's a healthy cleanup, not if you work at the companies or if you're long those companies, but it's a healthy thing. That's how things work. And corporate office is not big enough to be saved. Correct. So they might be a byproduct of a bailout, but they're not going to be the reason for a bailout. If you notice the two things where I think the Fed blinked during this cycle, was when the UK defaulted and the yen was spiraling out of control. 
And then you saw what I call the clandestine plumbing come into play that no one sees unless you're looking at dollar swap lines that came and saved the system. I don't think they're going to come and save the system for a bunch of decrepit corporate office properties in California, Chicago, or New York. Those are going to be allowed to go. And you're right. We should be looking more diligently as to where there is too much value in the stocks relative to the underlying trend. But it goes back to a little bit of what we've been saying for a long time, all three of us, is that the U.S. market is both A, expensive, and B, the fundamentals aren't great. There's tons of pockets where it's really bad. And so I think you have to sort of go outside a lot of norms. And I know everyone's capitals in the United States. and But if you look at emerging markets, I think there's some really interesting opportunities. And the trend of DM to EM might be a thing again. And the valuations are just a lot different and the growth metrics are a lot better. And so on the margin, we've been doing more and more of that. It's, of course, dangerous because you got to understand who's running your capital, who's the company behind that. And it's almost too compelling to us in some areas at this point. I don't even know what your returns are to date. I'm sure you're doing fine. I'm sure there was a slight drawdown, but being able to navigate through this, I would call it a nonsensical period, living to fight another day, I have no doubt that you guys are going to have a strong 2023. And I would go on to say that the next time we have you on, hopefully in two to three weeks, I think we'll be further along in this non-meme world kind of thing. And the, you know, it's funny, there's just certain stocks that you can't meme. You can't meme a tangible asset company. You can't meme a builder. You can't meme real companies. And the real companies are the ones that are starting to take the earnings hit. And the point you guys made in the opening of this, which is the story stocks and all that stuff, that's coming to an end here, I think, very, very soon, if not already. And so- Hey, Danny, they memed the movie theater company. Yeah, they did. But that's not, not a, a real company, though, Vinny. Yeah, it's not a real company, Vinny, because, you know. The guy does more pants to meetings. And... Popcorn has a high multiple uh, <laughs> then, so. I don't know if it's amazing. It's just funny what they do to stuff. The algos got a hold of every high short interest thing, and they just squeeze the crap out of them. And hopefully for us, this will keep people from shorting stocks for a long time. I think it was such a painful experience. And it just shows you how hard shorting can be, and which I don't recommend to people. But- what you want to see, though, Porter, I'll counter that and maybe end with this, is I've said this all along. You guys agree. If you have a long and you know that there's a turn in the business, a cyclical, and it's heavily shorted and it's a real company, there is not a better long that you can make. And we don't find those often, guys. I no. mean, those aren't. No, no but but it, no. but it will happen. So what will happen inevitably in a true bear market, which for those people out there, we have yet to see. I don't care. We have not seen this yet. A sustainable market, you will get those opportunities. You had it in energy. On this last cycle, you guys found those companies, whether they went bankrupt first or not, it's a whole different story. But I think you guys follow what I'm saying. And so there will be a time where credit can only get so bad. And yet these companies are American Express. I'm making this you know, down the line from here. I'm getting way ahead of myself. But those are the ones that you look for and you lick your chops on. And yeah, you'll be early. But that's, I think, to counter your point about people not shorting, I think you want to see people believing that they found a business model that's vulnerable when all it really is is valuation. And we'll come back to that. We're a ways away, I think, from any opportunity like that. Danny, the other th the sad thing is that what happens is that retail gets a hold of these meme stocks. And the problem with these meme stocks is they're the ones that are, I think, uniformly worthless. I think if you took the whole bunch of them, they don't make any money. They're really not worth anything. Silver gates of the world, they're worthless. Coinbase is not worthless. The real value is 80% lower, all these type of names. And so retail gets sucked in and buying these stupid squeezes, and then they're left with a bag of crap. That's a great point to end on because I say this all the time. 
it's not just the retail that forces the hand of the professional institutional money manager. And we've been on desk before and have seen it where the portfolio manager says, just cover it. I'm out. And you're forced to make these decisions. And that has what has happened. And again, if you have duration and you have confidence in what the numbers you're looking at, you will get it back. So anyway, guys, can't wait to get you back on probably post the next Fed meeting. And hopefully that Fed stuff will soon be behind us. Oh, great. Another Fed meeting. Another Fed meeting. And <laughs> when this comes out tomorrow, the PCE will be coming out. Can't wait for that 0. 0.3, 0. 0.4, 0. 0.5, and then changing the market 4% based upon that. But anyway. I keep telling people who are younger than ourselves, like, guys, every single one of these numbers is an adjusted number. Like exactly. They just revised real. GDP and Q4 down. I mean, it's, it's just amazing it's, it's, how it's, billions of dollars of capital is moved on 10 hundreds of billions. Ten basis point differentials in a made-up adjusted survey number. It's incredible. And with that, love you guys. And we will be back soon for another episode of What Are We Doing? Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.